Do you ever have one of those, those moments, those days, when you'd like a do-over? Oh, why did I say that? Or why did I do that? Or why didn't I say that or do that? I had a lot of those moments when I was in school after an exam of thinking, oh, I wish I had a do-over to study for that. Uh, most, I'd say a fair number of Sundays, as I'm driving home, I'm thinking, oh, I wish I had a do-over. I forgot about this, or I forgot about that, or did I really say that? I can't believe I really said that. You're probably walking out saying the same thing. Last Sunday was one of those days. We're talking about Habakkuk, and, and Sunday afternoon, Monday morning, I was thinking about it, and I realized... I'm not sure that I, I really grasped, I really communicated the, the passion of Habakkuk and, and the desire of Habakkuk's heart and his interaction with God. And, and one of the reasons is because, you know, there was, I didn't talk, we didn't talk about the fact that Habakkuk asked these questions of God and God doesn't run from those questions. Habakkuk is not at all condemned for bringing to God his honest questions. In fact, I think as the prophecy progresses, God uses those questions to bring Habakkuk to a place of trust. It's the questions that initiate the conversation. It's the questions that, that, that rise up out of Habakkuk's heart and out of his mouth that allows he and God to have this interaction, this conversation that gets him eventually to the end of the prophecy in which he says, God, even if... Nothing I want to happen, even if things I want to happen don't happen, I will trust you and I will rejoice in you. And the prophecy of Habakkuk is the sense of even if, and a sense of how long, and a sense of God, aren't you going to do what you said you're going to do? Zephaniah is God doing what he says he's going to do? Zephaniah is answering those questions of Habakkuk. Zephaniah is, is not a conversation between the prophet and God. It is God saying, here's what I'm going to do. And the beginning of this prophecy of Zephaniah is actually pretty graphic and brutal. We barely, we read the first, the second verse of chapter one and the 18th verse of chapter one and sandwiched in between is a whole lot more like it because he begins the prophecy by saying, I will sweep everything from the face of the earth, says the Lord. And he ends that that, that first chapter by saying, he will make a terrifying end of all the people of the earth. When we read that kind of language from God, it does make us a little bit nervous. We get a little bit apprehensive, not just because God is is speaking words of condemnation, but because it just doesn't seem very nice. Right. And, and, And we want God to be nice. But in this prophecy, God begins and spends an entire chapter, and actually most of the second chapter, is God's words of condemnation upon primarily Judah, but the whole world. It is a wake-up call that God is delivering here. 
This is the kind of thing that you say to, to someone playing around the nests of poisonous snakes. It is not a time to, to be subtle. It is a time to be direct and clear. And God is direct and clear with his people and with the whole world. He wants to get their attention Because what they are doing, the sin in which they are engaging themselves, is destroying them. It's leading them down this path of destruction. And he wants them to stop. He wants them to understand that. As I read this, I I thought to myself, maybe in my generation, maybe generations before... A lot of the conversation that we tended to have in the church was about the wrath of God. God was stern. And, and, and God expected us to live under these rules and guidelines. And it was very restrictive and it was, and it was very difficult. And there was a lot of, of sort of negative images of God. And in response to that, we have swung the pendulum way over here so that now... We almost see the forgiveness of God as an entitlement. It doesn't matter what I do, God has to forgive me. It doesn't matter how I live, God will just forgive me. And while that is true, there is in that mindset that, that almost has an implication that God doesn't really care what I do. He'll just eventually forgive me. And God is saying, while his forgiveness is offered to us, while he offers forgiveness to every person in every way about everything, God is trying to help us understand what we often miss, that sin is more serious than we tend to think of it. Can God forgive? Of course he can. Does he want to forgive? Of course he does. But he also doesn't want us to live in these destructive patterns of life that are leading us down pathways away from him and away from his forgiveness. And we think God doesn't care. We can do whatever we want. That's what the people of Judah think too. But God does care. Because if you love what is good, it means you hate what is evil. Because what is evil is influencing what is good. And drawing it away from what is good. Most of the prophets talk about things like this. And most of their their accusations, most of their concerns are with injustice. And while Zephaniah talks a little bit about injustice, he talks about violence and crime in Jerusalem. His main point is taking it a step back from the what people see. What he's concerned about is the cause of the injustice and that's idolatry. You read in chapter 1, verses 4 and 5, I will crush Judah and Jerusalem with my fist and destroy every last trace of their Baal worship. I'll put an end to all the idolatrous priests, so even the memory of them will disappear. For they go up to their roofs and bow down to the sun and moon and stars. They claim to follow the Lord, but then they worship Moloch too. It's idolatry. Now, the hard part for us is when we think of idolatry, we think of blocks of wood or stone or images made of gold or silver that people get on their hands and knees and they bow down and worship. And we don't do that, so idolatry is not a problem for us. And we sort of sort of look condescendingly upon the Israelites who worship these 
pieces of wood and stone. But actually, idolatry is anything that is the central focus of our lives that is not God. Whatever it is that our lives orbit around, if it's not God, it's idolatry. Idolatry is ultimately rooted in self. It is putting ourselves in the center of our lives. It is putting what we want in the center of our lives. It is putting uh, our self-centeredness in the center of our lives instead of God. The problem with idolatry is that it just continues this path of destruction. Because when, when our lives are focused on ourselves, when that's what drives our decisions, it drives our relationships, it drives everything that we do, we become manipulative we become violent in all of the forms of that, not only with, our, with physical things, but with our words. And we cut ourselves off from the source of all that God wants for us. It destroys our witness because it says to, to other people who are not followers of God, this is what it looks like to live for him. And ultimately, it's rooted in a skewed view of who God is. Idolatry, to worship idols, to worship the things of our lives, that whatever they may be, sometimes it's wealth, sometimes it's, it's uh, success, sometimes it's fame, sometimes it's a relationship that, that is more important than God is. There are all kinds of things, and many of them good. But when those things become the central focus of our lives, what we're really saying is, as wonderful as God is, he's not enough. I I believe that God is good. He's just not that good. I believe that God is loving. He's just not that loving. He cannot fulfill the deepest desires of my life, but this can. Idolatry in many ways is taking a shortcut to... Those things that we yearn for and desire. God created human beings to flourish. You read the first couple of chapters of Genesis and and you sense God creating with joy and with the purpose of flourishing the earth and all that he creates, including human beings. He creates us to know the flourishing joy of his peace and his presence and his grace and mercy and love and everything beautiful. That's what God creates us to experience. And he planted that into our souls. It is the deepest desire of our, of our existence to want what God created us to experience. And when, but when sin gets in the way, we begin to think that we can find that and experience that in any other way than God. And we tend to, to, to want to find the shortest, quickest route to that. And it's hard because God, our journey with God toward what he has created us to experience is often a zigzag, circuitous, troubling, mountainous, difficult struggle of a journey. Because all along the way, we are battling idols that we want to hang on to. 
And all along the way, God is trying to move us away from them and to, and to be victorious over them. And we go through difficulties. That's why we talk about the way of life is the way of the cross. You just look at Jesus. And a lot of following Jesus in getting to that end that he created for us is waiting for God to do what we want him to do. And we struggle with waiting. We're continually trying to avoid waiting. You see this in Exodus 32. The Israelites are in the wilderness and Moses goes up on the mountain and spends 40 days with God. Glorious experience. The people down in the wilderness are waiting and waiting and waiting. And 40 days is a long time when you're waiting. And they become impatient. And what do they do? They say to Aaron, look, I don't know if this Moses guy is coming back or not. We're not sure. But we need something now. We can't afford to wait any longer. So make us a golden idol that we can worship. Shortcuts always lead to idolatry. Our, our inability to wait always leads to idolatry. You look at the, the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness that we read just a few moments ago. Every one of those temptations is about taking a shortcut. It's about, Satan says to Jesus, you can have all the things that God has promised you. You don't need to go through suffering. You don't need to go through the pain of all this human stuff. You don't need to go to the cross. You don't need to die. You can have it now. Right now. And he tempts us the exact same way. The problem is, when we fall for that, when we give in to that, it doesn't lead us faster to the blessings of God. It leads us the opposite direction of the blessings of God. Idolatry not only leads us to injustice and, and leads us to, uh, to the, the worship of things other than God. It leads us away from God. And what we end up with is we are worshiping paper mache images. Of what God really wants for us to experience. What God wants for us is what Zephaniah describes at the end of this prophecy. Where he says, I'm going to bring you home. I'm going to gather you. And I'm going to bring you home. And I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to give you a good name. And I'm going to restore your fortunes. That is what God wants to do for us. And he's speaking to people who are going to go into exile. And it's going to be difficult for them. It's going to be a struggle for them. But he says, I'm going to bring you back if you trust me. That's my plan for you. My plan for you has not changed. I want your life to flourish. That's my dream for you. That's my plan for you. That's my goal for you. It's what I want for you. And God says, I'm going to bring you home. Home is the place of security and peace, life. And even if your image of home isn't that, the reason it's so painful when it isn't that is because we know that's what we want it to be. And God says, this is what I have for you. I'm going to be with you. And I'm going to make things happen in your life and to you and for you. You couldn't begin to dream. But you've got to trust me. 
And the only way we learn to trust God is to wait for God. Because it's only in waiting for God and trusting God that we draw close to God. I was in the prayer room earlier this week with the elders and we spent some time sort of uh, in silence on our own. And I spent about 10 or 15 minutes at the kneeling bench pondering this picture of Jesus, the shepherd holding a lamb. It's this beautiful image. I'm sure it comes from, from the... Luke 15 of the lost lamb and the shepherd that goes to find this little lamb. And as he is, as he finds him, he, he holds him close. You can see the smile on the shepherd's face. He's so happy. And in this prophecy, Zephaniah says, not only do we rejoice in God, but he delights in us. He delights to be with us, to hold us, to make us secure. The problem is idolatry and all the ways in which we struggle with that is that it leads us to wrestle with God instead of just nestling with God. We've had a new little puppy in our house for about a month. And he's great. He's a cuddler. We love that. You know, you love nothing better than a cuddling little puppy, right? But he's starting to get to the point where he's, he's, he, he, he wiggles a lot too when you try to hold him. We named him Wrigley because our boys love the Cubs and, you know, Wrigley Field. But we should have called him Wiggly because that's what he's become. I mean, yesterday I was holding him and he's fighting me, trying to get out of my arms. And, and each of us in the house have said it frightens us because we about drop him sometimes. And he doesn't realize the kind of peril he's putting himself in by fighting with us like that. Well, I mean, we're happy to put him down when he wants down. But he thinks he needs to get there faster. And he fights with us. And he can't see that, that we're not trying to harm him. We're just trying to keep him safe. And it struck me as I looked at that image that that's what God wants for us. To trust him. To let him hold us safe. And all the while, we struggle and we keep wrestling thinking that there's a faster way, a better way, a a quicker way. And there's not. Any other way leads to peril and injury. The question that's been going through my mind is how do we get to what God wants for us? How do we get to that place where we are able to begin releasing this this battle struggle we have with idols? In chapter 2, verse 11 of Zephaniah's prophecy, he says, God, I'm going to destroy your idols. And the word destroy sounds like God's going to pick them up and smash them on the ground, and then we're done with them. But that word actually means to starve. To famish. The King James Version picks up on that. He says that what I'm going to do is I'm going to starve your idols. I want God to smash them. I want God to smash them, be done with them, and I can move on. I want, even in that, I want the shortcut, right? And God says, but the journey of of starving your idol will draw you closer to me every step along the way. And the journey of me starving your idols is going to mean that you're going to have to trust me more and more and lean on me. You're going to need me. 
And so how does God help us starve our idols? By focusing our attention on him. By helping us see that everything we do, all the spiritual disciplines of life, reading the scripture, prayer, joining together in worship, serving, all of these things move us from a self-centered mindset to a Christ-centered mindset. But you'll notice that he begins chapter 2 with, by saying, gather together. Yes, gather together, you shameless nation. Gather before judgment begins, before your time to repent is blown away like chaff. Gather together. That's the first thing he says. And I think he's saying to us, until you gather yourselves, it's pretty difficult to change the focus of your attention. Now, we think of gathering, we think of coming together like this, and, and that is a part of it. I think it's a personal and a corporate gathering that he's talking about. But, but when he talks about gathering ourselves, it made me think of something I often hear watching basketball games. Where uh, the announcer will talk about how a player caught an errant pass, and be, but before he could take that pass and shoot, he had to gather himself. And what does that mean? It means that he takes a couple of seconds to make sure his feet are set and his weight is shifted appropriately and he's got the right grip on the ball. And then once that happens, he can take a shot that has a higher chance of going in than if he just stayed in that position and flung something wild up to the basket. And one of the problems they'll talk about is he he didn't take a moment to gather himself. She didn't take a moment to gather herself. There is in that idea of gathering oneself on a basketball court that subconsciously says something isn't right yet. Everything isn't in the right place. My feet are not positioned right. My weight is off balance. I don't have the right grip on the ball. And if I have any chance of making this shot, I'm going to need to take a couple of seconds and gather myself. And I think that's what God is saying to us. It's what musicians do before a concert. You take a few moments by yourself and you gather yourself. It is realizing, number one, that everything isn't exactly where it should be. And number two, it's recognizing that we need to do something to put it in the right place again. Because here's the truth about our relationship with God. He will not change us unless we want him to. God will not change us unless we want him to. Do we do the changing? No, God does all the changing. But until we want him to change us, he will not change us. And and this idea of gathering ourselves individually and corporately is in essence saying to God, we want you to change us. We recognize that there are problems in our lives. We recognize that we are struggling with these idols. We recognize that our focus is too much on us and we want you to change us. 
And God says to us, that's all I need. I just need to want to. And we'll do it. We'll start on this journey. We'll continue on this journey. Through the ups and the downs. Through the right turns and the left turns. Through the difficulties and the struggles. If you will trust me. If you'll stay focused on me. We'll get there. And I'll change you. It's the want to. And I'm convinced that it starts. It starts with an understanding of the great plans that God has for us. God has plans for us that far exceed anything you and I could ever dream or imagine. The question is, do we really believe it? Do we really believe that God's plans are to prosper us and to cause us to flourish and to lead us into a life of rejoicing and celebrating where we experience the joy of being with him and his delight of being with us? Do we truly believe that? When we begin to believe that, the want to, starts to change. And we start to become different people who no longer dread that great day of the Lord, but look forward to it with all the anticipation and excitement that we could possibly imagine. God has great plans for us, awesome plans for us. Do we believe it? Do we believe it enough To want what he wants. Father, we want to thank you for your great plans. Forgive us when we become lost in ourselves. Give us a new focus, new passion, new desire. And we pray this through Christ. Amen.